And we are live. Welcome to the Survival Podcast, episode 3041, if I have it right, and I do have it right for a change. It is 3041. This is going to be an Outback with Jack, and it's going to be mostly, I would say mostly, much more lighthearted topics than we've been digging into lately. We've got some homesteading stuff, some financial stuff, some concealed carry stuff, and stories from Grandpa Jack. Yesterday I went out and said, hey, what do you want me to talk about? on Outback with Jack. And I almost said, please don't give me any topics about the Ukraine or, you know, gas prices or something like that or politics. And I thought, no, I I shouldn't tell you guys what you should ask. I should ask you what you want. And the interesting thing was almost none of that shit came up. It was all kind of this lighthearted stuff. A bunch of you said you like to listen to me talk about stories from my childhood I guess I'm that old now. When you're a guy that people are like, tell me a story from when you were a kid, I guess that makes you officially old. I guess when they call you Papa Jack, it makes you officially old too. We'll do that today. We're going to talk a little bit about maybe what performance I might expect from Bitcoin, gold, and silver, all three. We're going to talk about ways to market a small business based on telling your story and getting others to tell your story. We're going to talk about doing project with your, projects with your grandkids. we got some questions on that. Combining gardens, cover crops, and meat bird production. Like I said, productive stuff and lighthearted stuff today. Um, thoughts on exit and build, or build and exit, and what that really means. And I can only say so much about that because I actually am not sure how I got any credit for that term whatsoever. That's John Bush's term, and he's, he's doing a great job building a community around it. Is there any safe way to garden with fresh chicken manure? I'll, I'll tell you my thoughts on that to a degree. Asset protection. Somebody asked about that. We'll talk about asset protection for you versus asset protection for the wealthy. Snub-nosed revolvers for concealed carry, crossbows for hunting. When is the economy going to tank? Is it already happening? And we'll see what we can do with some questions and responses to you guys. On that note, um, sitting here using a StreamYard studio, I am on six platforms right now. The two that I can see comments from directly integrated into to StreamYard, though, are Facebook and YouTube, unfortunately. That's the only place I can see them. If you're on one of those platforms and you make your comment or your question in all caps, I will star it, and that will put it at the front of the line to be answered when we get to the end. So, giving people time to get on by telling you what we're going to talk about, and also a little bit more here. i got one more topic for you today. What happened to Flat Earth Guy, and why was I going to debate somebody over whether or not the earth is flat in the first place. Don't I have better things to do with my time? Um, I, I don't know. I made an off-the-cuff comment, off comment a time or two about, well, that's kind of like people that think the earth are flat. And I'm sure there's some of you in here right now, you're going to start losing your minds and saying stupid shit like I'm a shill for NASA and I like their blue balls or something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I get tired of people that run off at the mouth with stupidity. But at the, on the other side of it, I get tired of so-called scientists that won't academically debate and defend their ideas. And I believe that we can have rigorous academic debate about just about anything, even something as stupid as the belief that the Earth is flat. Because the flat Earth people do a good job of what's called ad hoc bullshit, in my opinion. Which means they give you something sort of plausible to explain this thing, 
And they give you something plausible to explain this phenomenon, and they give you something plausible to explain that phenomenon. So you have three different things like, oh, I don't know, the seasons, uh, day and night, uh, and eclipses, right? So they try to come up with these ways to explain this. And, and they're stupid, but they are somewhat, like, you can tell somebody put some thought into trying to figure out how to come up with some shit that would cover this base. But what they lack is a unified model. In other words, for this one to work, this one has to fail. And there's no way that they can explain that unified model. And I thought, you know, that would that would actually be a way that this, even though it's stupid, could be dedu- could be debated in an academic format. So this is what I asked our friend Jackson to do. I asked him to agree to a time and place of the debate. It, that took a long time to figure out what the fuck he was saying. He finally did. And then we came up with rules of the debate. I'll give you guys the rules of the debate, and you tell me if you think I was being a tyrant by having these rules of debate. Both sides got an eight-minute introduction. Uh, so we both got the present our case for eight minutes on the intro. Uh, a coin toss would determine who went first. Whoever went first would get, uh, whoever got won the coin toss would get to choose who went first. You could go first or second. And then the other, the other person would get to choose who went last at the end. So completely equitable. Both of us were supposed to submit um, five questions for topics of discussion that we would both have to answer to Nicole, and we would both know the questions the other party submitted, and then Nicole was to, su- to source five questions that we wouldn't know until the day of the debate. Then we were to do the questions in order, whatever order Nicole came up with. If I went first on the first question, he would go first on the second question. Two minutes to answer the questions, and each side gets one minute for rebuttal to the answer of the other side. Uh, at the end, a four-minute close from both sides. I thought that was a very fair and rigorous way to debate a topic. He agreed to it three weeks ago. And then he bailed out on uh, Tuesday this week. Tuesday or Wednesday this week he bailed out. Because he still had not submitted his five questions. And uh, so I was like, dude, you either, you know, I gave you mine. You've had time to review them. You've had time to prepare. It's only fair that I get some sort of time to prepare, you know, know, get prepared for your shit. And uh, he said, I refuse to submit to you. You You are a tyrant as though asking him to submit his questions for the debate on the rules that he agreed upon was the same as asking him to, like, submit to Jack Spierko. Like, this is the mindset of these people. So I, I, I think that would have been interesting. Um, it's going to be a cold, miserable Saturday anyway, and we were going to debate at, like, 11 in the morning. Uh, my wife was even thinking that would be fun. I actually put some time into it. I, I built my eight-minute presentation, ran it through several times. I'm... Uh, a very good debater. I have formal debate training. I've never lost a scored debate. Um, and I thought this would be fun. I also wasted fucking time on it, guys, really, when it comes down to it. it it's a waste of time. And I had a feeling that this guy was going to run away and hide. Uh, then he threw off some name of some other guys. You don't want that fire. You debate him. Like, this is the same dude that when I said, hey, why don't we set up a debate with somebody that's like a scientist? He said that was a, uh, uh, appeal to authority fallacy. So he doesn't even know what that is. Um, I, I think it's all sad. Uh, I, you know, the, the, the hammerer says he thinks maybe he was trolling from the start. I thought so at first, but no. The back channel communications with this guy, he's alone. And uh, actually somebody that was here at my workshop um, met him. He's involved in several meetup groups in DFW, and he does believe his own bullshit. He, this is his thing. He really believes this shit. Now... Does that mean I'll ever take on someone else who wants to do it? Maybe, but I have other things to do right now. I'll announce that right now I am spending several hours a day developing course curriculum 
for a small-scale aquatics and uh, aquaponics uh, course. So aquaculture and aquatics and aquaponics. And given the interest in the audience, if I put that together, you know, I'll, I'll make some, like when I release that, I'll make somewhere between an extra fifty and $100,000 this year. And I, I won't apologize for that either. I'm, I'm pouring my ass and my heart and my soul into this course. Um, and I've needed to do something like this for a long time, and I've decided this is the one place where there's the least formalized education available to the backyard person, and I think it's the thing that can do the most for people that they don't already have access to something for. To me, that's way more important, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So I won't apologize for making money on it, but I also would say that like doing something like that's more important to my life, my freedom, and my audience than debating some flat tard who, who thinks that the, you know, the, the earth is a flat plane and, and, and uses things like, but why doesn't the water fly off the planet if it's flat? How is water level? These are the objections that this guy has. And how can a river flow north? Let's just cover that one and we'll go into what we have planned. Imagine that you were back in school, like, you know, eighth, ninth grade, and you made one of those volcanoes, right? You made a volcano, a little model volcano that you think fake eruption comes out of little fire and fake lava goes down the side. But let's say you just filled it with water. And you put a channel down all four sides, and you set it so it could go north, east, south, or west, and you made it level at the top and you filled it up. You'll have essentially a river that will flow in all four directions because elevation. Like, that's just the sadness that people actually can't comprehend these basic things is, is, is pretty bad. And it tells us, you know, more why we're screwed. So let's go to something more fun, Tales from Grandpa Jack. I was like, when I saw that, I was like, you know, I told a lot of my stories in the past. I, and I don't, you know, I, I know I'm the old guy now. I'm old man Spirico. But I don't want to be the guy that tells the same story over and over and over and over again. But I thought, I, I've got one, definitely, that I don't think I've ever told you guys. I would have been 10 or 11 years old. I was still living in Florida. We were running around the swamps and uh, in Florida as kids. And back then, you know, it was no big deal for, like, a group of 10, 11-year-old kids to be running around with BB guns. So we're running around with BB guns back in this, this pine forest. There was about 100 acres that it was privately owned, but no one seemed to care, so we played in it. There was all kinds of trails on it. And some doves come through the trees, right? And all my friends can't shoot worth the shit, so they're shooting at the doves from like five feet away and can't hit them. And we're all gonna we're gonna shoot a dove and we're gonna cook it on a fire. There's like four of us. We're gonna cook. We're gonna get one dove. And uh, finally, this dove like flies away because my buddy Davey couldn't hit it, and it, it lands way. To, I mean, way out. And I was like, I I, I didn't really like want to kill one of these damn things because like I knew it was illegal and shit. This was like June. I have no hunting license. I'm too young to hunt. This is a federally protected bird. I knew enough to do that. But it was like, there's like, shoot it, Jack. And I'm like, so I look and I'm like, that's so far. There's no way I'll make that shot. So I just held like a little bit above its head and crack. And this BB hits it like perfect freaking shot in the chest. And it doesn't kill it, but it knocks it. It just hits the ground and it's on the ground, you know, doing what they do when they're going to die. So I go over and I look at this thing and I'm like, oh, we got to kill it now, right? So I pull its head off. But, you know, I can take a double part in about less than 30 seconds now. I didn't know how to do that yet. So we're out there, and we're like plucking this thing like it's a chicken, right? So we pluck all the feathers off it, and we get this dull-ass pocket knife, and we're like, basically we cleaned it the way you clean a chicken. And then, like, it's obviously odd-shaped, and like, there's like no real meat on the on the legs or the wings, so we end up just 
basically then we breast it out. We kind of figure out like that's the only part with any meat. And we take this thing and we like we roasted it like over like a little fire that we built. And we did that, you know, it took forever to cook that way because we're trying not to burn it and we're trying to cook it. We're kids. We don't know like is somebody going to come catch us while we're doing this? Is it is it going to kill us if we don't cook it all the way? And eventually we get it cooked. And I got to say, it's one of the best things I ever ate. And it was basically like each of us got a quarter of the breast meat off this dove. And, you know, like they say, you know, little Johnny kills the bird when he's a kid or he breaks its wing and then he feels remorse and all. I, I didn't feel any remorse, right? Like, I think I did like that second of remorse when that thing actually went down because I didn't expect it to do it. But the fact that we actually figured out how to utilize it as a resource and we shared a meal together as kids... Like, there wasn't any remorse for that. That was like, okay, we did something that was technically not, 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 you know, following the rules. But we also, like, figured out, like, okay, so we could actually, if we had to, with the stuff we carry around in our pockets and these cheap-ass Daisy and Crossman BB guns, feed ourselves. And we all knew how to fish, like, and we all ran around with little pockets full of, you know, fishing line and stuff like that. Like, these survival fishing kits that, uh, that everybody has now, little tubes and shit. We were doing that with, like, uh, like film canisters and stuff when we were kids because you never knew where you'd be able to fish. So if you had a pocket knife, some hook sinkers, and some line, you could rig up, you know, a cane pole. And sometimes, it, you know, there was a lot of bamboo down there. It would actually be a cane pole. Sometimes it's just a stick. And, or, or a lot of times we would limb line. We didn't even know that's what it was called. We just knew that, like, here's this creek. There's this big cutout here. And if we if we catch a little fish, and we put them on a hook, and we throw them over there, and we put them on this green stem instead of a hard stem, it won't break. And we'd catch catfish and stuff like that, or turtles and whatever. I mean, and, you know, I actually never read the book. But my understanding is there's a book called Last Child in the Woods, and I think the reason I haven't read that book is the title alone hurts my heart. Like, I wonder... All the stuff that I've done as a podcaster, as a speaker, uh, even before that, as like a marketer, as a salesperson in the corporate world, like all of it, right? Would I have been able to do any of it, especially the way that I've done it, if I didn't have that childhood? Like there's a lot of, and I don't go into it, right? Like there's a lot of shit that I went through as a kid with family life that I, I don't wish on anybody. But that stuff, the hunting, the fishing, the running around the woods, the building forts, like the weapon we were used to build to like defend our fort. Like I, I found this book one time, and it was weapons kids can make. It was like in one of those things like the Scholastic Book Fair where you walk in with five bucks like you're a pimp daddy. I can get some books, right? So I walk, some of you are like, you're so young, you have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. Those of you that are like 45 and older, you know exactly what a Scholastic Book Fair was. So... I get this book, and I'm like, there's all kinds of shit you can do in it. And they show you how to make a catapult out of, like, inner tubes and, like, a legitimate, like, with wheels, you know, out of scrap wood catapult. You put tennis balls in it and shoot the tennis balls. Well, we took a one look at that, and we're like, we don't need to build all that shit. So we started taking saplings, and we would take our little Swiss Army knives and, you know, saw off the sapling a little bit over the height of our head, so you're looking at, like, we were little back then, so you're like five foot, five and a half foot. And then we take a screw and a drill and drill a hole in a tuna can. 
right? You had to do that back at your your, your granddad's place or your parents' place or whatever because you couldn't run off with a drill. You'd get your ass beat, right, if you did that. But you drill a hole in the can, make sure nobody's looking. You get a screwdriver and a screw. We take the screwdriver and the screw, and we put the can on the top of this thing, and then we would go all along the road. We had this pea gravel everywhere. So we'd get these boxes, and we would just fill up boxes and bring little boxes in and fill, like, buckets up because they were too heavy for us to carry back where we had our forts. Our forts were mostly, like, we had some stuff where you could climb up in the trees and see and stuff, like deer stands, basically. But our forts were basically, we would, every year at Christmas, when everybody threw away the Christmas trees, we dragged all the Christmas trees back in the woods, and then we would just pile them up in, like, a circle and leave, like, a little place you could crawl in. So you'd crawl in, you're just standing on the ground, but you got, you're surrounded by the Christmas trees. So we were, we were like, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna defend our, now no one's coming, right? But man, I'll tell you what, you pull back a five, six foot green stem sapling with a tuna fish can in it, down to about here, and you fill that tuna can up with, with, uh, pea gravel, and you let go of that thing. It's like freaking primitive claymore, man. It goes, you want to make sure you're in the right place, though. You can get some spray back or side spray, just going to say, right? But you learn things when you're a kid and you play in the woods. And I'm wondering if a big part of the lack of resilience is we didn't have that shit, right? Or the, the kids today don't have that. Because there was a lot of shit you did where somebody would get hurt. Like, and if it wasn't severe, then you knew you just needed to deal with it, right? And, and then, like, make it go away. Like, as long as somebody didn't break an arm or some shit, you had to, like, okay, I got hit in the face with gravel today, and I cried. Like, okay, now I'm going to have to shut my mouth. I can't hold a grudge, like, because our parents are going to find out, and we're going to all be in deep shit, and they're going to come take our fort away, which, thinking back now, was like a giant fire hazard. Like, imagine three years' worth of, like, Christmas trees built up in a berm. That's what we did. We didn't know any better. But we never burned anything down. And uh, before we go on to the next subject, I'll tell you that a few years ago, I got on Google Earth, and I pulled up that whole area where I lived and the apartments I lived in and everything. And all those woods, all those woods were gone. Last child in the woods, huh? I hope not. I hope not. All right, so I was also asked, what is my expected performance of Bitcoin, gold, silver over the next 12 months? Uh, number go up on all of them. How much? I don't know. Um, I don't claim to know. I don't claim to make predictions, especially over that long a period. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world right now. I am very impressed with how Bitcoin is handling this whole Ukraine crisis and shit like that. I think that it's going to be very difficult to pull pull Bitcoin down much further. Somebody said to me yesterday, I'm looking forward to buying more Bitcoin in the 20s. And I said, unless you're talking about a decade, I wouldn't get too, too, too excited about that, right? Like, I, I don't think that's really going to be... Um, much of a thing. I could be wrong, but I think like if you if you want to look at bad news to push pricing down right now, we're we're there, we're there. We're we're seeing like every bad thing that can happen and overreactions to it too. I don't want to go into Ukraine crisis, but as I said yesterday, other than the stupid shit our leaders will do in or our, should I say our our owners will do in response to it and the hype around it. This is, should be one of the things that affects America the least. What goes on between Russia and Ukraine shouldn't really affect us, but it is. And it's, it's interesting to me, too, that, like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to impose sanctions. They're going to drive up the price of oil and gas, and that'll teach Russia. Yeah, okay. Okay, you know that 
you know that that doesn't work, right? You know that um, Russia's economy completely falls apart when oil and gas are below $70 a barrel, right? That's the math. But let's push it up to $120 a barrel or more. That'll show them. So um, it's going to increase Russia's influence and power around the world because all this shit of people condemning them, nobody really cares. The Germans are still going to buy Russian natural gas because they have to. If it doesn't come through a pipeline, it doesn't matter. They're buying it right now. The pipeline's not done, right? So it's... Uh, And they say, if, you know, somebody's saying here, if Russia gets kicked from SWIFT, they'll, uh, they will use crypto coin currency, will they use crypto coins or natural currency? They're not going to get kicked off SWIFT. So that's the thing. It's all bullshit. It's all talk. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it at all because the, the same people who would kick them off are the ones that need to buy the friggin' gas room or their friggin' people are going to freeze to death. They can't run their economies. You know, Europe can't run its economies without Russian gas and oil. It's just a reality. And uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, the uh, the virtue signaling of green energy. I'm all for green energy. I think we should build as much green energy as we can, but I don't think we should decommission a damn thing on the other side uh, for the next decade at least. For the next decade at least. Um, I do think we are transitioning to a world of, of greener energy. Now, I'm not going to call it green because... All these forms of energy have their own forms of environmental pollution, etc. But it's greener than the sulfur that leaches into the water when you mine coal. Okay, there's no way around that. But we're not there yet. And so I don't think they're going to get kicked off swift. But I, I expect gold, silver, and Bitcoin all to do relatively well based on past performance this year. Now, here's the thing about this. Here's the thing about this. Based on the four-year cycle of Bitcoin, this should be overall a meh to slightly down to only an underwhelming little bit up year, if that cycle continues. However, that cycle already appears to have been broken by the influx of institutional money. That institutional money is not going away, and again, if we get a spot ETF for Bitcoin this year, and we may or may not, But sooner or later, they're going to have to do it. Then it's game over. Then you're looking at 300K within six months. Okay? That's what you're looking at. But when we get that, it's hard to say. Gold and silver, I think they're going to do okay. I'm not going to get rid of my silver or my gold. I'm a both kind of guy. When people say, oh, precious metals. I believe in Bitcoin and crypto. I believe in both. But I think we have to start realizing The gold and silver are weak technologies in 2022. You say, well, if the grid goes down, man, your Bitcoin node won't work. And we'll have other problems. Uh, and the whole world will, will be collapsing around you. And you can't eat your gold and silver. And until you get some form of rebuilding of society, no one will fucking want it. Because people will be more concerned about beans, bullets, and band-aids than silver and gold. Silver and gold are barter tools for the rebuilding of civilization. They will not work at the bottom of a civilization. Because it will be much more important to you that you eat today, or that your kid not die today, than it will be how much wealth you have in the form of a piece of metal out of the ground. So it's already got that limitation. So at the same time, you would be able to say that Bitcoin is worthless, or can't be transferred, or is held up and is, is impeded in its ability to conduct commerce. The same would be true of gold and silver. The difference is that right now, if I want to buy something from you and you're 100 miles away from me and you want to sell it to me for $4.99, I can pay you with lightning. It'll cost me two cents to do it. 
And you'll have your money like that. Try it with gold and silver. Try it with gold and silver. It doesn't work. It's old technology. Here's the deal. So gold is incredibly expensive. And the same, everything I'm about to say can be said for silver. And it's actually more so because it takes more silver to have the equal amount of money. So gold is incredibly expensive to move in large quantities. By the ton, even by a couple hundred pounds. When you're talking about massive wealth, like wealth transfer between corporations or between nations, it's incredibly expensive because it requires security that's unbelievable to be able to do it. You have to have guys with guns, airplanes, all kinds of logistics to be able to move it, right? And if you just move around the accounting, it really doesn't mean that the wealth has truly transferred. You haven't taken possession, not your keys, not your coin, not your vault, not your gold, right? Okay, now, when we get down to about the ounce level, silver and gold, they're not real practical, but they're relatively inexpensive to transfer because it's a small amount, and I can just go, bloop, and that's, that's a good thing. But it's incredibly expensive to buy or trade small fractional amounts of precious metals. Gold price, gold by the gram, it looks pretty cheap, a gram of gold. But then do the math and calculate how much you're paying per ounce. So small-scale transactions with gold are just cost prohibitive. Small-scale investing with gold is cost prohibitive. You know, unless you're going to buy, you know, GLD mutual funds and then not your vault, not your gold, right? So if you want to stack gold, it's really expensive to buy by the gram. And people say, well, silver, silver, silver. Okay, well, silver has all the same problems. And if you, if you want to understand this, then try to buy something where somebody has to give you change. So I give you an ounce of silver for something that really should cost about, I don't know, eight-tenths of an ounce. You owe me two-tenths of an ounce back. Oh, I know. We'll use ten-tenths silver. I guess if you could scrape up enough junk silver to create an economy, which everybody tried to do before cryptocurrency, and it never worked, by the way. I took it. I took it as payment. I received quite a bit of it, but it really didn't work in the economy. All right? But we also minted 10th ounce silver. It cost about four times as much by the ounce to mint 10th ounce silver as it does to mint silver by the ounce. If I want to break off a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a Bitcoin, I can do it and I can send it frictionlessly around the world for no real money. And people say, no, it's expensive. I did it the other day. I paid $10 for this or whatever. Guys, look, if you ignore the fact that we have a deployed functioning solution called Lightning when you talk about Bitcoin fees, your opinion means nothing. You're either not informed to reality or you're intentionally ignoring reality. And you don't have to run your own Lightning node. You can get a Lightning wallet. You can start. You can deposit to it, and you can start transacting with Bitcoin on Lightning tomorrow if you want to. And there's your small-scale transactions and your large-scale Bitcoin. That should be transferring major wealth and holding. So let's move on to something else there. Um, I was asked about ways to market your small business. And I've done whole shows on this, so I don't want to burn too much of our, our time today together on this topic, but I want to kind of simplify it for you. And this is what I always say when I do something on marketing and teach something on marketing. It is important that when you're trying to do something complex, you come up with the shortest absolute definition of that thing that you possibly can. Shortest 
absolute. That means when you give that definition, you can say more, but you don't have to. And, and if the mind on the other side of the discussion is understanding and open, it understands everything. So the first thing I do is I always say we got to make sure we don't put sales and marketing into one place. They're, they're different things. And then we can give an absolute definition of both of them. Sales. Transfer of belief. Three words. That's how you sell a thing. I transfer from me to you my belief that this product is of the value that I say that it is and has the needs and wants and desires on the other end. And if I do that, and if you have need, want, desire, and money, most of the time I'm going to get the sale. So we can do the whole thing with just, just one short phrase. Transfer of belief. So what's marketing's absolute definition? Telling your story. Also three words. That's what marketing is. It's telling the story of you and your company and your product. If you are a major brand and you're selling phones or something, it, it gets a little different. We won't go into that because I know that's not how the, the question is coming in. It's still true. But it's not as true, and it's not the greatest strength of marketing. But when you are a small company, when somebody does business with your company, and even if you have a brand that stands apart from you, let's say John Willis with SOE Tactical Gear, who makes these cool-ass clothes that I wear all the time, or, or my buddy Brian Black with ITS Tactical. ITS Tactical can stand alone. People can come to ITS Tactical not even realize who Brian is, right? Same with SOE Tactical Gear. Hey, I just want this really cool chest rig. This looks awesome. I'm going to buy it. But both of those brands got there with those individuals being the face of the brand and telling their story. I'm not going to go into it, but I can tell you a lot about Brian that I would know even if I wasn't his friend. And I can tell you a lot about John that I would know even if I didn't talk to him directly, just from his, his rants on YouTube and Instagram and stuff like that. They have told their story, and the story is behind the brand. And the thing about humans is that we naturally are storytellers. That's why somebody asked me to tell a story from my childhood today. We like to tell stories, we like to hear stories, and above all, we remember stories. So we remember stories. So if we can, we can pull crypto back into this for a minute, and I keep talking about this one platform, I'm sure there'll be thousands of platforms like this in the new ownership economy, but Liquid Vineyards. So Liquid Vineyard says you can basically get an NFT token that says you have rights to maybe 10 grapevines um, in Northern California on the coast that produce really great Cabernet wine. And you have the, you've licensed the rights. You basically own those vines for, let's say, you buy a 15-year contract. Now, the reason that's powerful is it's different. It's a story. The, the fact that that is, so that's a story for you, but what it, for, to, to bring you in as an investor, right? But what it, what it does is it gives you a story to tell. So now if you think about the kind of person that's going to put that kind of money and effort into wine, they're probably the kind of person that has like a wine cellar in their home or at least a really nice wine rack, a little wine jail or something like that. And they like to have people over and share wine and tell the story of the wine. So what's the better story of the wine? Hey, I found this wine at some bottle shop downtown and the sommelier said it was good. Or, hey, this wine is from my vines that I have the rights to for the next 15 years, and it's in Northern California on the coast. They're like really old vines or whatever it is, right? whatever story goes along with it. So that leads us to the next part of marketing. The reason you tell your story in marketing is to attract interest so that you can sell. 
But if you just sell, right, if, if you just sell, straight up sell, you'll win business as you get eyeballs on you. But mostly that will be it. You may get some referral marketing or whatever. But if you tell a story to attract, right, if you use features of your story, features tell, benefits sell, right? That's old school sales training right there. So we're going to use our features and our story and our features and our story to attract. They're going to provide the benefits at the sales process. And this can all be done online in an automated process, or it can be done with marketing online and generating interest and then a person verbally completing the sale or in person. It doesn't matter. But if we do that, what happens is the person buys the thing. And now they don't just have the thing. They have the thing and they have the story. And what happens when people have a thing and a story is they tell the story again. So everybody talks about, I want to go viral, I want to go viral. And they mean they want to make some video of shoving a firecracker up their ass or something and uh, then have like a bunch of retards forwarded everywhere and get a million views and a million subscriptions. That's nonsense. It can be monetized, but it's still nonsense. Real viral marketing is when someone comes to your house and you make them breakfast and then they say, man, these are really good eggs. And you say, I buy them from a farmer right down the street. I go to his house, I buy the eggs from him, and the ducks are just running around everywhere. I took my kids there. He let my kids pet a duck. He showed me the whole place. He's got all this cool stuff. And the person says, wow, I, could I get some of them? And they say, I, I don't know. They, have, they take limited customers. The last time I bought some, it was on a waiting list. I'm getting a phone call. Right? I'm, getting, I'm getting that phone call. But people drive an hour to buy freaking two cartons of duck eggs. It's insane. But it's because they're telling the story. And so what you want to do with marketing is you want to make sure you define a true story that conveys who and what you are and why it's important to you and why you want to bring that to your people, to your customers. And you want to tell that story in a way that it can be easy. Even if it's not, you can't control viral. Viral equals you don't control it. So they will not tell the story exactly right. It doesn't matter as long as it's positive. And that way when somebody comes to, well, I understand that you have turkeys here too. I used to, but I don't anymore. It's okay. You don't have to worry about it because you can't control the messaging. And this is where corporate brands fall apart. Because I used to consult for these big brands. And this is what they would say. We want to go viral, but we want to control our messaging. Okay, I can't help you. Next. Seriously. So that's what I got on that one for you today. Um, next. Doing projects with your grandkids. Like, And this question was more like, give me some projects to do with my grandkids. Sorry. Is one grandpa to another or one grandparent to another if you're a grandma? I can't tell you what to do. And I shouldn't. There's let's say let's say it's one grandparent and one grandchild. It's not a group. If we could have more, it'll be the same, but we're gonna keep it simple for the suggestion. Well, there's two minds involved here. The child's mind and the grandparents' mind. And there's things that interest both of those minds. And the job I believe of the elder is to not always worry if the kiddo is really interested in the thing that you're going to choose to do. Because your job as an elder is to expose them to these projects and to these things. And to make them feel a part of it, and to make them have at least, depending on their age and how complex what you're doing it is, have some understanding of what it is. And this is something you'll learn the longer you're a grandparent. 
you'll take a grandson or a granddaughter, you go do some stuff with them, and then you'll be like, I don't think they really, you know, really enjoyed that. They seemed distracted, or they didn't seem like it was really their thing or whatever. And um, then you'll talk to, you know, your parents, your kid, your in-law, whatever, or your, your, your spouse, you know, if your granddad, you talk to your wife, your, the grandmother. And, and then, you're like, oh, they had so much fun with you yesterday. And they're going on and on about it. That's how you handle that. You pick things and do it. And then, you, even though I think we should be exposed, though, like if they're not really interested in gardening, we're still going to go plant some plants. But also figure out what they are interested in. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing to sit down and play a video game with a kid. I, 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 knock, I knock 35-year-old guys that sit around and play games after work until bedtime. And I should, because you're not doing anything productive with your life. But spending 10 minutes to play some stupid video game with your kids or your grandkids, that's fine. That's You're going into their world, understanding them a little bit better, and then it's the time together. But, like, one of my granddaughter's favorite things is to watch old Bugs Bunny cartoons with me. And you might be like, it's just more screen time. No, but we're watching Bugs Bunny cartoons from, like, the 40s and the 50s. And you, you start to realize, like, when you were a kid, you were watching those and they were 30 years old already. They're actually pretty sophisticated for a kid. To really get all, everything in it, you got to have some understanding of the history. There's a lot of World War II imagery in it, but it's you know it's it's jovial. It's not hardcore war or something. But like you know, raising money for the troops and you know Bugs Bunny flying a jet bomber or something like that. Uh, and then you have to understand like what was going on in the country. And then you're watching this with a five year old, and she gets the humor, but not everything. But if you can just leak a little bit of that over time then that helps the mind begin to mature and start asking questions like, well, why what, why, why are cartoons stupid today and why do I like the ones that Grandpa Jack watches? And that doesn't always work. You try to expose them to something and they don't like all of them, but she likes Bugs Bunny from the 1950s. Really, really cool. And so we take walks together. Take them for a drive. Take them fishing. You're like, if I take them fishing, what if we don't catch any fish? It doesn't matter. They're not going to remember that anyway. They're going to, and they're going to not pay attention, and they're going to throw rocks in the water or whatever. Let them do it. Like anything you can come up with. My grandson, when we built the tool bench, um, put a torch in his hand and taught him how to do wood burning. So we're doing a, a wood burn finish on the boards, and he had a blast running a blowtorch. You know, we did that for. I let him like there was even some I was going to paint, and he was just having so much fun. I let him do that. You know, and uh, so just. Just do something. Do anything. The time together is the important thing. It really is. And when you are doing a project with a kid, you could do it faster and better if you did it alone. And you chose to do it with the kid. That was your decision. Shut up. Slow down. Enjoy the kid. And if you have to fix it later, you have to fix it later. And don't tell them you did. They don't need to know that. I'll tell you a quick story about my, my grandson, right? So... Um, he one time when he was really little before, not my grandson, my, my son, before I was in his life. He's not my birth son. And uh, he was like three or four, and he planted, I think, lollipop sticks around this, this tree, and he was going to grow a lollipop. So his grandfather, you know, like months later when he stopped asking about it, put some lollipops in the tree like they actually grew. It's okay for kids to believe shit like that. It's okay for kids to believe in magic. We take it away from them way too quickly. Uh, and next up, what about combining gardening, cover crops, and meat birds? 
Now, the way this person meant this that I, I get out of this is it's kind of like a mobile version of World War II Victory Gardens. So the World War II Victory Garden was we had a coop. Okay, we had a coop, put chickens in a coop. We had a run on this side and a run on that side. One year the chickens, or half a year, depending on what kind of crops you're growing, are on this side, and they can't get on this side. That's where the crops are. And then we swap them. And I think what this person is saying is that you put your garden beds in, and whenever the time's not right to crop a bed, we cover crop it. Gets to a certain side, we've moved the chickens in. They feed on the cover crop. And then we move them again. About the only way I feel that it really makes sense to do that with is going to either be um, using chicken tractors or using something like a chick saw that uh, Justin Rose is known for, where that's where we have like a mobile coop and we move it around and they're in the coop at night and then we put out the electro fence where we want to keep them in during the day. That's about the only way that I think you can do that. Would I do it, though? Uh, probably not. I think it's probably more work than it needs to be. I have no problem growing clumps for birds, but I'm going to tell you this is what happens. So, for instance, we had kind of an area we could fence the chickens out of. When I first moved to this property, I planted it with, like, cow pea and a bunch of other stuff chickens like to eat. And when we let them in there, it was a pretty big area. It was all gone in half a day. So they're good for... So if I did it at all... I would only be doing it so I'm not the one cutting back the cover crop and tilling it into the soil or mulching it down. That's the only reason I would do it. I would be far more likely to grow things that are cut and come again harvestable for chickens with something like a rice knife or the grape sickle, pruning knife sickle that, that I recommend from Glittering Bazaar. And then you have your chickens somewhere near the garden in some sort of containment. Or if you're like me, you have... You know, you, I free range and I have my raised beds so high the birds really don't bother them, right? And then when they're around, you just cut and toss. To me, that makes more sense. That way you're growing some of your own food. Um, but the amount of cover crop necessary to substantially reduce the cost of raising a group of meat birds through to harvest is significant and you're better off using pasture. That's why that's why every commercial producer does it. So you can throw some supplementation in there. Thoughts on build and exit or exit and build? The person said build and exit. The term that I hear used by John Bush is exit and build. And um, this is what John means by it. And it's not my phrase, so it's not right for me to hijack it. I have to talk about it from a perspective of the guy that came up with it. And he's the one running like exit and build summits and events around the concept of exit and build. And that is, it, it's actually dramatically simple and very succinct. It's a great marketing term. It's great for telling stories, right? It's a great for, and the other thing you want to do when you tell a story, if you could make the story your customer's story or your follower's story, if you can reach in and touch them to something that they want in their own life, then you get a lot of interest. So, The exit and build idea is that we exit as many parts of the state and oligarchies and technocracy system as we can, and we do business with each other, and we build our own lives in our own ways. That's, that's the most basic way to understand this, and it can be through the development of intentional communities, or it can be individual homesteads working through networks so that we help each other. It's... Part of it's a parallel economy, right? Like, 
when you and I do business and you pay me in Bitcoin or somebody paid me in some crypto I never even heard of today. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but a lot of people, they want to pay me in some coin, and I'm like, that's a shit coin. I don't want that. But then what I'll do is I have a few brokerages that I use for swapping cryptos out, and if they take it, I'll take it. So I get paid in that, and then I have them deposit it straight on to CoinEx, no KYC exchange, and I convert it into Bitcoin and take it into my own uh, custodial wallet, and it's my Bitcoin. And that all happened without their banking system. And now, you know, some of my vendors in the MSB that I give discounts for don't take crypto, but some do. That's an, And then... You're now connected to the vendors that support the program in a way that's outside their system as well. I built that membership program. I built the community around it. You don't just get to be a discount vendor because I like your discount. I have to like you, your product, your company, and what you're all about. right? So then we have this kind of insider group, like, you, and you know you can trust them, and you know if they... If they do screw you in any way, then they're going to get tossed out, right? That's exit and build. And I was doing that before John really came up with the term. I didn't even know John yet. And then how many ways can you do that? And then exiting is a percentage process, right? So I've talked about self-reliance and self-sufficiency for a long time. And I've said self-reliance is something we measure in time. If I can run a generator to power all my electricity for two weeks and I have enough gas to do that, right? Then I have two weeks of self-reliance for energy. If I have solar panels on my roof that give me 30% of the power that I use every, every month, then I have 30% self-sufficiency because it's ongoing. So how many of those types of things can you integrate into your life to further separate yourself from those systems? So if I grow 25% of my food, and I barter for another 25% of it in my own parallel economy... I am 50% exited their food system. And you know the old saying, and it really applies here, never let perfect be the enemy of the good. Never let perfect be the enemy of the good. It, it, it really is something that's fine to phase into, and if you hit a cap, because here's the thing, you can get to a point where I could 100% exit, but there's conveniences here. So I'm choosing the conveniences I want, but I've got my necessities covered. That puts you in a point where you feel very, very secure. You know, when you, when you feel very, very secure that I'm going to be able to clothe, feed, and medicate my family when necessary. Then, any, then if I want chocolate and I can't grow chocolate in Texas and I don't have somebody like in some, somebody figured out how to do it in South Florida or some shit, um, and I have to buy my chocolate from the mass produce, production shit, it's okay. It's okay. Either that or you don't drink the coffee would be this, another example. But then can I partially exit even a thing I can't fully exit from? So if I buy my coffee from Brian at Food Forest Farms or Nicole at Holler Roast, you know, they're both here in the United States. So they're buying a great big giant bag. They're doing all the custom roast and stuff, and they'll take crypto. Right? And then they're both in my MSV. You start to see how that all works together, man. That's, that is, that's exit and build to me. Exit and build is also, even if you're still in their system to a degree, like banking, I have a mortgage from a bank. Why? Because it's fiat money and it's cheap. Why would I, why, like, you could get a Bitcoin loan. Yeah, and screw myself out of thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, right now, this makes perfect sense. Collateralizing a loan against Bitcoin using fiat makes sense. Right, um, 
that all makes sense. So I'm not exited there. But look at me as, a, as an individual. When you guys first met me, if you're long-term listeners, when I first started the show, you heard me every morning in my car, podcasting from my car, on my way to a corporate job that I fucking hated. I've not been the same person since I walked away in 2010, have I? 2010, I walked away from the corporate world. It's been 12 years. I exited and built. Because as good as TSP was, when I made that decision, I'm done. I think I've made it a hell of a lot better and built it into something a hell of a lot stronger in those 12 years now. That's exit and build. So you take it and you do it the way that makes sense for you. Uh, next up, is there any safe way to garden with fresh chicken manure, specifically lasagna gardening? Here's the thing. I wouldn't worry about my health if I spread out some fresh chicken manure, which I'm probably not like keeping a bucket of chicken manure around. I'm probably like wrecking out a chicken coop. And then I'm going to lay down that straw or wood chips or whatever and lasagna garden that. I wouldn't worry about the health of myself doing that. Like, I'm going to get some kind of chicken E. coli AIDS or some shit like that. Uh, you know, they're going to come get me. The, the, the chicken Nazis will come get me or whatever. Um, I'm not worried about any of that shit. What I am worried about is that is a hot manure. And when it gets in a moist environment, it's going to kick off a very rapid um, compost. And that compost is going to generate heat. And if it's kind of smattered and scattered around, you could have a plant sitting right here that just goes explosive growth. And you have a plant right here that looks very, very miserable. Because it happens to have its roots right down in a place where it's cooking compost, you know, at a, even, even if it's not a full cook-off at like 160 degrees. You know, it's cooking down there at like 120. And that plant, you know, with its roots down in the soil, it, it wants that root, that, that soil temperature somewhere in the 60s to 70s. Especially once the heat comes in the summer. So, I'm going to say at least 30 days... So if you're going to do a lasagna mulch, you're going to go with chicken on the bottom, so like chicken wreck out on the bottom, at least 30 days, and more like 60. And I wouldn't worry too much after that, because you're, you're not in a huge compost situation, but you can get too fast a compost action, or you can get too concentrated nitrogen, and both of those can burn plant roots. So it's not a safety issue, it's a, 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 a an issue that can cause technical problems with your growth rate. Growth rate. It can also lead to early on, some anaerobic pockets and lead to some bad soil chemistry. So if you really just want to spread like manured waste on the ground in a lasagna garden, I would do that at the end of the season, and then I would plant in the spring, and then I wouldn't worry at all. And that will work fantastically, and you'll have an incredible soil ecosystem built up. And I would supercharge that. I would take, you know, a bag of chicken feed or, you know, talk to your feed stores. Like, if they ever have rotted bags or bags full of weevils or something, even a feed that you wouldn't feed your birds if you're on organic or all natural, non-GMO like I am, um, you still can use that shit, like, to feed soil. Like, because it's not something you're feeding continuously. And I've done things like taking, like, dry molasses and a crappy bag of chicken feed, and exactly what you're talking about, waste out of the coop, spread that out, and then heavily mulched on top of it, watered it in, done that in like late fall. And when you pull that mulch back in spring, it looks like a bait store under there with worms. And if, you're, if your garden's full of worms, you're going to be fine. And window looker preppers is how about pig manure, same thing I just said. Same thing I just said. I would not, and, and even more the case, I... 
I am not a fan of using uh, pig manure without full composting. Now, I don't own pigs, but I've been around them and worked with them enough. Pig manure is not that far off dog manure. Uh, I want to treat pig manure closer to like the way we would process humanure than I, than I want to treat it like I would do chicken. It, it looks like dog turds. Uh, it smells like dog turds. Um, I guess it has a hot, high degree to do with what they're eating. But I am far more interested in taking all manures and putting them through a composting process. I'm actually going to have, once it's not so freaking cold out there, a pretty cool compost video. I've kind of modified my Lazy Man compost system uh, this year based on something that I heard about from Nick Ferguson. I didn't do it quite the same way, but it's pretty easy, and it seems to be working really, really well. Anyway, moving on from there, asset protection. We can do a series of shows on asset protection, but what I want to kind of get people's mind around is a lot of people asking about asset protection. They don't have much in the way of assets to protect. They have some equity in their house, a few hundred thousand dollars in retirement account, like an IRA or 401k or something like that, uh, maybe a little bit of money in the bank. Most of the strategies, it's not that you can't do them, it's not that they're not available to you, it's that they just don't make so much sense for you. Right now, for now, now, legalities can always change. One of the safest places your money can be is in a retirement account, like a 401k, an IRA. Because even if you're sued in most jurisdictions, that's not subject to attack. It's protected. Even O.J. Simpson... Right, kept his NFL pension, lost almost all his money, but he kept his NFL pension. It's kind of, there's a, there's a, there is an asset protection in existence around retirement accounts and pensions right now. It's not a hundred percent, but it's damn solid. So that money already has a level of protection. The strategy of the wealthy is to own nothing but control everything. That's the basic strategy. So I don't own the trust. I own the company that owns the subcorporation that holds the trust. And the company is not really worth much in of itself. It's a, it's a framework. And it makes it a lot more difficult to get down into that trust. I want to hold my land in a trust. And then I want to hold the trust inside a real estate LLC that I am a, a partner, that actually you call it a member in an LLC, a member of, even if I'm the sole member, and I probably want to hold that real estate holding LLC inside something else. Like, And if you don't have a lot of assets, then that structure is not free. You don't just magically do that and you can make that. So there's a cost of all these things. So you have to think of that cost like an insurance policy. So if you had, um, if you're a farmer and you're growing a crop this year, and if the crop comes in, you are going to harvest it and you're going to make a million dollars on the crop. That's your that would be your sales, a million dollars. And you're you're selling something like corn or beans, or whatever. You have a known yield price ratio. And I and I had like an insurance product for you, and I said, you know what? For fifty thousand dollars, if crop fails for any reason. We'll pay the difference. Well, you'd probably buy that, right? That would make sense. Like, 
I'm now seriously mitigating my risk, assuming the profit margins were right and all, that that made sense, right? But we can just be, you know, do back-of-the-napkin calculations. you got a million-dollar crop coming in, and I tell you I'll do you the same insurance policy, but my insurance policy costs $500,000. You're to tell me to go, screw it. You're going to end up making no money either way. You're still going to not make any money. You're better off taking the loss, running your farm as a corporation, and then separating the land ownership so your farm is a corporation. That See, this is how you actually do it then. So I set up the land. I have my farm. My farm is held by a real estate holding corporation in a land trust. Over here, I have a, I have a, that, when I say farm, my, my land, the, the land that the farming happens on. Over here, I have Jack's, you know, farm. And I run chickens and pigs and cattle on, on, uh, Jack's other land. But Jack doesn't own the land. And I, I literally lease it from myself to keep everything clean. And I use the lease money to pay the tax on the land, and that's paid through the trust that actually owns the land. So if I would, now you have to think about what that means if you do that. So let's say that you had land and you were leasing land, and I took out a loan, right? And I took that loan out to buy infrastructure and for initial stocking to buy some uh, heifers and, and, and a bull or whatever and some chickens and some brooding equipment and all. And I'm a bad farmer. I just suck. And at the end of the year, I owe like $50,000 I can't pay uh, to, the, to, the, to the loan that I took to finance my farm. And they foreclose on me and I go bankrupt. And I got bankruptcy protection to agree, but they can come after my personal assets. But I was farming on your land. Can they go after your land? Can they say, hey, that's Jack's farm over there, right? That's not Jack's farm. That's not Jack's farm. That's, that's Bill's farm. I just leased the land from you. So you're insulated from my incompetence. Maybe I owe you money. Who knows? But see, I can actually control both sides at any. I'm still in the same legal protection. Now, don't take anything I say as legal advice. Don't go making decisions. And the, re the reality is, if you want to get in a serious asset protection, you need an attorney that specializes in asset protection for the types of assets that you hold. And it's going to cost money, so is there enough there? What is my basic strategy for the average person for asset protection? Buy Bitcoin and hold your own keys. Okay? Buy Bitcoin and hold your own keys and hold the majority of the wealth that's visible to the man in retirement accounts because of the protection it offers. And then understand, like, is there anything that is locally advantageous to do? So one time, because if you guys know Bones and Amy, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy, they're good friends of ours, not just expert counsel and community members. And they're not extravagant people, but their house is a Mac Daddy house, right? And one time I asked Bones, I said, why, why is your house so, you know, mansion-esque? And he said, well, when you're a young doctor and you're starting your practice in the state of uh, Florida, the first thing your advisor says is throw as much of your money as you can into your house. Because if you get sued for malpractice or anything as a doctor, your real estate is protected. So once they take you for everything you have, you could still turn around then, sell your real estate, move into a smaller home, and you get to keep that because it's real estate proceeds. So that's an example. I don't know if that applies in other states, but it does in Florida. So make sure you're aware of those as well. Next up, um, somebody said, should I switch to a snub-nosed revolver from whatever gun they were already carrying? And and I don't remember the model, but it was like one of these like kind of five-shot titanium frame light 
carries really, really nicely guns. And here's what I'll say. I don't care what you carry. I know that anything that I carry as far as a firearm will be more useful to me in a defensive situation than a sharp stick, like this toothpick I'm holding up. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to stab you, right? I, I, I know that. And I know that there's a lot of guns out there, and some of them are worse to get shot with than others, but I don't want to get shot with any of them. I also know that a handgun has a very poor statistical track record of one stop, one shot stops. And one of the things we have to be realistic with in the, the gun community, especially the concealed carry community, is that lethal and stop are not the same. Now, if you have instant lethality, you also have instant stop. But if I put two rounds into a guy and he's armed and shooting back at me, and he bleeds out in 90 seconds... How many bullets can he shoot at me before he bleeds out? And the answer is all of them. Right? So, handguns inherently suck for one or even two shot stops. And there's studies I've covered before on it that have gone through actual shootings that show this to be true. Now, there's things we can do that are more likely to anchor somebody. But I know of a verified story. This guy happened to be a martial artist. I think it was more because the guy was just huge. A guy tried to rob him. Pulled out a 357 Magnum. Not something I want to get shot with. I mean, I've killed deer at 100 yards with a 357 Magnum. And the guy said, give me your money. And this guy said, I'm going to take that gun from you. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. So the guy shot him in the chest twice. And the guy took the gun away from the dude and literally beat him. The guy almost died from brain contusions. He, this is before cell phones. No pay phone around. The guy leaves this guy in a pile on the ground. It happened to be the good guy in this case, but it can happen either way. Gets in his car, drove himself to the ER. He's bleeding out of his chest. And he tells the, the doctors there he, he got shot twice in, in the chest with a, with a large caliber handgun. He didn't know what it was. And he beat the hell out of this guy. He didn't even believe he shot because he's on his feet so well. He kind of start then he kind of like starts to really bleed internally. He collapses. Right? So there's all, like when people say, but if you use this, then it won't be bullshit. That's always, these people have been shot with 45s, 44s, freaking all kinds of shit, and, and, and continued to aggress in the attack. So the gun is only one tool in mitigating a potentially lethal conflict. So it is more important to me that you carry a gun than you carry a gun that's big enough to kill elephants with. So if you're more comfortable performing with a revolver, especially as you get older, and people have dexterity problems and working actions, and like, You can still do it kind of under stress. That's a different thing, right? So maybe it's a, if it's more comfortable to carry on your body. I've seen people go to kind of like, you know, women have purses and they make great concealed carry purses. Man carries around a satchel, everybody calls it a man bag, mocks them, makes them take your man car away. But if that's what it takes for you to be able to comfortably carry, then that's fine. But then you got to start in some ways thinking how women with their purse are, right? Like you can't just lay it on the chair when you go to the restaurant is back there and somebody could grab it and take off with it, taking a gun too. So, But whatever it is that makes you able to be a comfortably armed citizen to you can function, right, to where you can function with the weapon and it's comfortable enough that you do carry it. Because I know people, and I'm guilty of it myself, like, you know, this is one of my carry guns right here. It was given to me by John Pugliano. It's a great gun. I love it. It's a CZ 9mm. Uh, alien gear carry holster. But it is not, especially in warmer times of the year, the most comfortable thing to carry. And 
so due to that, you know, if you don't have another option, sometimes you just be like, ah, I, I, you know, where we're going is probably fine. And it, you never know when you're going to need it. That's why you carry it. My hope is that I never need that gun or any other gun for the rest of my life or anything other than making deer into beautiful chops and venison on my table. I hope I never have to fire a gun at somebody. But I know I don't get to choose when and if that happens. So I would rather have a very comfortable-to-carry titanium frame Smith than have nothing because it was too hot that day. I was wearing shorts. It just, you know, I, I, I'd carried all day, and I decided to go out in the evening, and it was starting to rub into my, you know, my, my waistband or whatever. So to me, I don't really care. I don't really care. And somebody said a suboptimal gun that you carry is better than a gun that you don't carry because it's uncomfortable. Um, I, I agree with that, but I don't believe there is such a thing as suboptimal when it comes to handguns in comparison to other handguns. Because I've looked at the data, and I'm going to tell you what stops fights. It consistently stops fights with one shot to the torso and upper body and the head. Shotguns and rifles. That's what consistently stops fights. Even if the person, even when you look, when you look at the lethality, it's much higher than handguns. But even where it's not a lethal injury, it tends to be a fight-stopping injury, especially on a double shot. So, all right, moving on from there, crossbow hunting versus more conventional hunting, and thoughts on good enough for our ancestors. So the person asked about crossbow hunting. That's all they asked about, and I'm adding the good enough for our ancestors because I think this is an interesting thing we can learn about here. So. First of all, people often equate crossbow hunting is way superior to arch to standard archery drawing a bow back hunting. And it's like every other weapon system that man's ever devised. It has advantages and it has disadvantages. So what are the advantages of a crossbow? The advantage of a crossbow, I'm sitting up at a tree stand. Right, where deer can see me, but I'm camouflaged. I'm trying to blend in with my surroundings. Bow is already completely cocked. Arrow is in the bow. My sum total of movement, when a deer comes and gets in range and I can take a shot, and best case scenario, now he kind of goes behind a tree and it blocks his vision, and I know he's coming out and I'm waiting for him, so I bring the crossbow up and I wait. Same thing you do with a bow. Compound recurve, I don't care. You wait for the opportunity, you bring the book. You don't just stand there like this the entire time, right, with your hands up. It gets tiresome. So you, you come up. Now, with the crossbow, all I have to do is come up. With the bow, I have to come up and I have to draw. That's a lot more movement, and movement is where they burn you on two things, guys. They burn you on movement and eye contact. You never want to make eye contact if you get busted. If they see an eye, they are gone. They know They know it's bad, right? So that's why we were like... Facial nets and things like that. But still, I, there's a thing with deer that even if you don't think they can see your eyes and you make eye contact, there's an there's a energy that happens, an energy exchange, and they know because they're prey. And it's the same with elk and all, all the animals we hunt, right? And if it's a big enough animal, maybe it's bad that you made eye contact because now you're, you, you're like, I can't get away, so I got to, you know, like it's a bear or something coming at you. Um, but anyway, you, you've, you've had to make that extra movement. Now, what often happens is that this deer is coming, and you're, you swear to God he's going to come out from behind his tree or bush, and you draw the bow, and he decides, you know what? This is a really interesting leaf. I think I'll paw at it for a while, take a dump on it, 
sniff around and fart around behind this place where you can't get a shot through. And that, with a bow back, you got two choices. You wait them out, and I don't care if it's a compound, your, your muscles are starting to twitch, right? You're starting to get less able to make your shot. Or you're going to let the damn arrow down. There's your big difference. You got that extra movement and you get the muscle fatigue if you, and if you get caught and you're trying to wait them out. And the best thing you can do really, eye contact, close your eyes. Close your eyes, count to ten, slowly open your eyes and see if they're still looking at you. And they're doing the head bob and the foot stomp and they're pretending to eat and trying to get you to move. Close your eyes again. You might open them up and he's somewhere else, but at least you got a shot then, right? Um, and you can't really do that as effectively with a bow as a crossbow. What's the other What's the other side, though? People think like crossbows are like lasers or some shit. You can shoot further with a good bow than you can with a compound. I mean, with a crossbow. I don't care if that thing's got 250 pounds behind it. When you let loose with a crossbow, it's a lot louder. And deer, elk, etc., will do what's called jump the string. And the further the shot is, the more time they have to react to that shot before that arrow gets there, and no arrow's really going to go fast enough to compensate for it. So I've seen people make, I don't shoot this far, I've seen people make 60-yard, 70-yard shots with a compound bow on, on deer, mainly on pronghorn, because they hunt uh, like stock tanks and all, they got known distances. You're not doing that with a, a, a crossbow. So it's a trade-off. It's like any weapon system. For every advantage, there's some counter-advantage to the other side. You can certainly shoot faster with a bow than you can with a crossbow. Right? You can shoot way faster if you have to make a follow-up shot. Uh, I hit a deer one time. It was one of those shots you expected to just drop, and it was almost directly underneath me, and I hit him right in the spine. And usually when you hit a deer right in the spine... With a, with a broadhead, man, they just, it breaks the spine and they go down and they die really quick. Well, this one, like, I hit the spine, but not perfectly. And it kind of like took him out on one side. And he was like trying to get away and I had to make another shot. That would have been far more difficult with a, uh, with a crossbow than a bow. I also have a pretty bad shoulder injury and it's easier for me now to hunt with a crossbow than a bow because of that, that shoulder injury. So that, that's how I works. Now the, the good enough for our ancestors comment. I saw somebody recently on, on Twitter, you can tell this person, and kudos for him to do something, right? But you can tell this person has no knowledge of outdoor, woodland, probably homestake, anything skills. And they, they're one of these young people that decides, I want to learn how to do all this stuff. So they made a statement, I'm going to start bow hunting, and I'm going to start with a recurve, because if it was good enough for our ancestors, it's good enough for me. And I'm like, so how old do you think recurves are, especially modern like fiberglass laminated recurves. They're not, they're not they're like 100 years. You know, stuff like some of the first the first recurves that were put out by like Bear Archery when Fred Bear was still around and traveling all over the, the world, hunting everything there was with recurves. It's, it's not our ancestors, it's your grandfather. And I don't believe in writing off technology. And I, I think sometimes a person's better off learning the oldest Technology and sometimes they're better off learning the newest. So I didn't really criticize this person. Like, you might want to examine why you think that and what might be better, especially if you're going to go target shoot and that's your goal, I don't really care. But if you're a new archer, there's a lot more that can go wrong when you're using a recurve or a longbow with that ends up with you didn't, I don't care if you miss, miss is fine. 
kill is fine. Cripple is a thing that is an archer, an archery hunter. That's the one thing I never want to do. It's almost like a, do a surgeon that loses a patient on the table that was a routine procedure that shouldn't have happened. That's how you feel like. If I'm going to take and hurl a sharp razor blade tipped stick at hundreds of feet per second at this animal, when I could just pull out a gun and shoot it and know what I'm getting, if I'm going to do this, then I have to master my craft and I have to have respect for this animal. And the shots you make in archery that are the ones that make you feel like you've really done it is when you put that arrow straight through the lungs and that, that deer runs about five feet and looks around like, what the hell was that? And then the back end just starts kind of shimmying and then they just fall down and go to sleep. That's when you feel like all the hours that I spent practicing my craft were worth it. And I don't care the recurve. I don't care if it's a freaking atlatl. When you go to, when you go to using an arrow a dart, a bolt, on a big game animal. I think you owe it a certain amount of respect in your proficiency. And if you can't be proficient with one technology, you shouldn't remain married to it because that's what worked for our ancestors. Because if you were really worried about primitive technology, you'd be out there with an atlatl or a freaking sling hurling stones. Right. So it's great to learn these skills, but not at the expense of the animal. That's just how I feel. Um, our ancestors also, like, I think somebody just commented there, like, would run animals off cliffs and shit so that they would eat, right? And our ancestors, if you had said, hey, look what I got for you right here, man. Check this out. Look how this works, right? How long did it take the Native Americans to put down the bow and pick up the rifle once they had an opportunity? There's a reason we as humans develop technology. Sorry for the faded voice there. All right. All right, so... For those that are on the audio, that was uh, a lever-action rifle. When is the economy going to tank? I don't know. And it's already happening. That was the, that's our last uh, pre-loaded question for today. So if you haven't gotten a all-caps question or comment in, get that in now. I'm going to go lightning around with that. Got a lot of stuff planned with my grandkids and my wife today once I get done early on a Friday. Um, I, I really want you to understand what is so bad in America's economy and looking to the future right now. It's about, think of it as inventory for a factory. Okay, Let's say I have a factory and I have plenty of capital in reserve. I have money. Okay, And my factory makes blue-green widgets because it doesn't matter what my factory makes. And there's 80 things that go in every blue-green widget. 80 little pieces and parts that make the widget. And every widget that we make requires a man-hour. Okay, Not a very efficient business, but let's just say that it does. Um, now, I can't get 40 of the thingamabobs that make the widget. And if I could... I can only get enough man hours to make a thousand widgets a week. And now I get an order for 2,000 widgets a week. I have a manpower and inventory shortage. No amount of capital can fix that. You see the problem there. You see the problem there. It's insurmountable. The government can print money and give me money can't get 40 of the 80 thingamabobs to make the widget, 
And if and when the supply line finally opens up and I find some thingamabobs and I bring in surplus, it's temporary that I can meet the demand. And during that period, I don't have enough manpower to get the widgets made out of the thingamabobs. That's the entire country right now. Why do you think cars are selling for ridiculous amounts of money at this point? I got a really great deal on a prepaid lease for a Toyota truck. And I went in to get it. I mean, I made a deal over the phone. I'm one of those people, I guess I can make deals even when other people can't. And uh, I basically told the guy, I like the idea of driving this truck for two years, but I don't need to. It's just that, you know, you advertise something. If you actually can do what you said, I'll come down and write you a check or not. Go check. We go in. We basically go in, sign some papers, and drive away. But I look at the lot. There's no fucking cars on the lot. It's empty. And there's people, I saw more people doing paperwork than I've ever seen in a dealership in my life. I said, what the hell's going on? He goes, we have some vehicles coming in in two weeks. All those people are pre-buying them before they even see them. That's cars. One of my one of my most reliable contacts in construction is telling me their roofing materials are going up 10% a quarter predetermined. And it's not really because it's that much more expensive. It's number one, the company can do it and get away with it. But number two, they don't want to sell more than they can make. They can't make it. We have a manpower and material shortage across our country. Then we have the most abhorrently stupid behavior by leadership of this country that is, I believe has ever occurred in our history. I don't think there's ever been a time where more damage has been done by to the U.S. by the U.S. itself. I think this is the, you take COVID and then you take the stupid shit that we're doing right now, you know, the Russian sanctions and all this shit. Putin's evil. Fine. You still got to run your economy, guys. And again, driving up the price of oil and gas and, and, and coal, because all three are going to go up, will make everything in America more expensive and increase, increase Russia's power at the same time. And then we still don't have the thingamabobs to make the widgets. And we don't have the people to staff the jobs. I go, when I go to a restaurant and have the manager come out and apologize that we had to wait a little longer than normal, I'm always like, it's okay. But when they say, let me tell you what's going on, you can see that we have like only two-thirds of the place filled up. It's not COVID. Can't get servers. Servers here are making 60 grand or more a year. And I can't get servers. I'm paying $16 an hour for people to wash dishes. I can't get dishwashers. And this guy's a manager at this place. He's making six figures. And he's like, I started as a dishwasher 14 years ago. Now I'm the general manager of the whole restaurant. There's actually a path from dishwashing to doing what I do. Can't get anybody to do it. So when you don't have inventory, and everything costs more because of fuel, and you don't have manpower. Now, yes, we're moving to more and more automation. But then throw $30 trillion worth of debt on top of it that can never hope to be repaid. Then let's start proxy wars with other nuclear powers and, and destroy consumer sentiment. And window liquor prepper has it right. This is all, part, this is all planned. They're all, this is not incompetence. Now, I do believe that the dementia patient in the White House and his cackling hyena friend are incompetent. But they're not making their own decisions. They're being told what to do. And they're perfect for the job. They, they seem, it seems ridiculous that these two people run the most powerful country in the world. 
But you have to have people that look this incompetent and burned out to be able to do it and have people think, well, it's just what's going on. Even the people that are defending them know better. They just hate the other side enough. And that's the thing. We've, now we've divided the country to where about half the people in this country will say they don't, like they're polled, his approval ratings are 32%. Wait till we get to an election. It will be razor hair in 2024, depending on who wins. He's got 21% approval rating, and then a lot of the people that say they don't approve are still going to vote for him because they hate the other side. This is all sculpted. And I think we have to start looking at this economic collapse, and I've been saying this for years before all this COVID shit started. It's like going to a black hole. It's not... That's how we think black holes are. But if you watch sci-fi, right, you know, like the black hole, like you enter the event horizon, and you're slowly being stretched out and pulled. And things start to get wonky and weird and maybe some temporal problems. But you don't really know what's going on until it's too late. How long does it take to go down that hole? I don't know. It's already held together longer than I ever expected. But, yeah, that's that's where we're at. So let's see what you guys have been shouting at me here in all caps. Would a 5-inch deep flood table be deep enough for the hydro setup you built for Mother Earth News. I think so. It's the deepest I can find where I live. I, I don't know why it wouldn't be. So you're, I guess you're talking about you know how deep the flood table is. Five inches, I think I think my shallow one's three and a half, and I think my bigger ones are like six. All you need to do with flood and drain in a hydro system is make sure your roots get wet. And actually... Less in a table is good as long as you can get the water up to the roots because it pulls less from your reservoir. So I don't see why not. Um, says uh, Jonathan says, hey, Jack, do you have an EDC? Yeah, I've done whole shows on EDC. Um, and and I, I think one of the things that I've done over the years with EDC is I've minimized it a great deal. I, I, I started to feel at one time like I was like Batman with a utility belt. And so, like, my EDC now is I carry a knife, you know, um, so I'll have a knife of, of some sort on me at any given time. I have my wallet. I'm not going to pull all my EDC out here, but I have my wallet. You know, I carry the Ridge wallet, and that's got all the things I need to run my life on, and it's got identity theft protection because you can't you can't get an RFID chip signal from inside here. You know, I, I, carry, a, I carry a gun usually. Um, I carry a, a Streamlight flashlight. Um, I carry some things on my keychain. A lot of times I am carrying a multi-tool, but I would put that in my MDC, most day carry, not everyday carry. It depends. I, I, I think that we we can get way too caught up in some of like the uh, like prepper porn kind of stuff, and we start wanting to carry like everything uh, that we possibly can. I consider carrying your phone part of the EDC. I don't believe in leaving the house without a means of communication. If I were to have some kind of uh, activity going on uh, out at my gate and I had to go confront somebody, not only would I have a gun and a tactical light, I would have my phone because if it goes really wrong, I want to call 911 as soon as possible. If someone needs assistance and they don't have a way to communicate, if something goes wrong and I need backup, I need to communicate. So there's EDC and then there's like situational carry as well. Um, so that's just kind of where I am with that. Um, I do keep a vehicle kit as well, and it's almost inevitable that wherever I am, 
I am going to be somewhere in proximity to my vehicle, whether that's at home or away. And uh, you know, then you either have to make that up for every vehicle, or you have to cognizantly think: if we're taking the truck instead of the car, let's move the uh, the, the 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 basically your bug out and active shooter bags over. Uh, survival tip says exactly: we carried a snuff can full of line, twine, sinkers, and different size hooks. I guess that's one of my fishing stories. Yeah, I mean, like we that was EDC when I was a kid. We didn't even know that there was something called EDC, but like. We never went anywhere without some of that stuff on us, you know, and, and a little pocket knife of some sort. Um, yeah, that was like, and that was because we just wanted to fish. And I think there's like some lessons to learn in EDC from that. Like, what what do you really want to be able to accomplish, and then minimize what you need to get that done? Because I'm not going to walk around with a fishing pole, you know, strapped to the back of my head or something. But I, I actually have a truck fishing kit that has three telescopic rods in it, and no matter where I am, I have some uh, some of like the uh, the Berkeley baits that are so you can immediately catch something. I've got a small cast net, I've got some lures and some stuff like that. So if my vehicle's with me, I've got that, and that's cool because there's times where you're just like driving over a bridge and you're like, well, that's kind of a cool spot. And you, you put, kind of mentally file it as I should check that place out. But there's also times like, I got time. And you're like, I wonder if there's a way to play, place to park around here. You kind of turn around and come back. Oh, look, there's a place. And you can tell people do park there. So you know that, like, fishing there is probably okay. And boom, we're going to find out if this place, and maybe we don't even catch anything, but we might observe enough that, like, okay, now I'm going to, like, lock this into my phone. And I think it's it's, it's fun to do that. And I, I really, I really feel bad that our kids are not growing up that way anymore. Uh, at least not most of our kids. Survival tips and other stuff also says, dude, I remember that book also made a slingshot with inner tubes. I bet it's the same book if we're about the same age. There was all kinds of shit in there. We, we figured out how to make mortar ball, uh, mortar, uh, tennis ball mortars uh, with that book. They did a spring thing or something like that. They're like, oh, bullshit. We use some gas. I don't, I don't even want to explain how you do this, but you can make a flaming tennis ball with a little bit of tide you can make the thing go and make kind of like a pseudo napalm uh i'm not sure all these statues of limitations are up on the things i did when i was a kid anyway plant propagation says bny melon launching crypto buying for institutions yeah there's more and more banks doing that one thing we have to be careful of is would the united states ever move into doing what you know evil vladimir putin and russia is doing which is what they're saying is Russian citizens can own Bitcoin, but they have to use custodial wallets within the financial institutions, like Russian banks. Um, I don't know how you ever enforce that. I don't know how you ever enforce that, because telling me I can't run a piece of software is one thing. Keeping me from running a piece of software is another thing. And remember, I don't even have to run software. You don't have to run a node. You don't have to run a wallet on a daily basis. All I need is some information. All I need is cryptographic information. And I can access my Bitcoin anytime, anywhere, anyplace with a little bit of technology. You can't really take that away. So um, what I think that we'll do more and more is the way that governments have traditionally combated black markets. Instead of saying you can't do it, they make compliance easy enough that the average person complies and then they don't really worry about enforcing the other side because it's such a low-cost 
either perceived or real. So if you have like, you know, during the American Revolution, the reason, you know, some of our founders were doing things like pirating rum and wine and cider uh, around the tariffs of the English is because the tariffs were high. If the tariffs are, you know, they, they talk about, you know, 2% tax on tea or whatever. But if all the tariffs were that low, then we wouldn't have had as much smuggling. And we also, it wasn't just the tariffs. It was, the, it wasn't that anybody could bring product in. So you had to pay the tariff, but you also had to buy from the approved sources and controlling the supply. So that created the black market. But if you had said anybody that wants to can bring anything they want to in, and I, this is not pro-tax, this is just reality of economy, uh, and the import tariff is 2% of, of the appraised value of the item that arrives at wholesale value, you're not going to have a black market. You're not going to have a black market. So I think you're going to see more and more ways that the government creates more oversight of crypto with loose controls. Now, that doesn't mean it will always be that way. But I think that's what you see in the the, uh, the short-term future. Survival tips also, you know, there was always that one kid who wanted to be the doctor, and you would let that fucker drag a BB out of your back with whiskey poured over the wound. Never had a BB taken out of my back. Did have one actually stuck in my head, and it looked like I had a really nasty zit. Um, we had rules about distance, not in the face. When a BB gun fights, you had distance rules, not in the face, and no more than two pumps. Click, click. That was it. Sometimes people violated those rules, mistake or otherwise. Um, James Bailey says, can you give your thoughts on the truckers after what happened over the weekend? You spoke a lot about it in strategy, so I'd be curious if you, what transpired changed your thoughts. It didn't really change my thoughts, but it's what I expected to eventually happen. And I think it's why it's important that they got as much done as they could while they were doing it. And my understanding is there's now a convoy headed to D.C. here in the States. I don't know how big it is. I've heard less about it than I heard about the Canadian convoy. And I think our truckers here need to be really, really careful. And I think they need to realize something. Shutting down government is really not possible. Our government is designed to function after a nuclear strike. right? But shutting down a city to the point where it pisses the people that live in the city off is doable. But it may not be the best strategy. And, and, and like I said, you have to have clearly stated goals and not very many. One, two, three demands. This is any, any um, demonstration. One to three demands maximum. Clear and easy to understand. Things that seem reasonable. That actually make the government look stupid for standing in the way of. And then you have to do something to be seen and heard without pissing the people off you need on your side. The big weakness in Canada is that Canada isn't the country you think that it is because you saw what happened happen. Like, we saw all these truckers, we thought, man, Canada's got some real patriots, and, man, they're, they're, you know, the majority of Canadians stand up for their rights. They don't. Um, I think the poll I looked at, so, so something more than 70% of the average Canadians were for arresting the truckers and anybody supporting them. They've been that mollified. They've been that controlled. America, we have... I think a much larger segment of our population that's like, no, I'm fed up. I've had enough of this shit. And we also had something Canadians didn't. We had examples of what happens when you don't do all this draconian shit. Florida and Texas and South Dakota. And people are starting to wake up to, wait, the whole end of the world shit they talked about not happening there. And I think we have that example. So I think we can do better. 
It'll be interesting. One of the truckers said they're going to do exactly what I've been talking about, which is a strangle maneuver around D.C., basically shutting down all the highways. But, guys, that's federal. I mean, D.C. is federal by itself, but shutting down interstate highways, that immediately goes to the federal level. They certainly can invoke certain you know, terrorist laws, Patriot Act, all this kind of shit, use financial ways of shutting things down. I think this is why we need privacy coins. Even Bitcoin can be tracked, right? But if you just basically have Pirate Chain and Monero go in, convert somewhere, and the people that actually need the money get Bitcoin on the other side because it's instantly tradable, it's very hard to do anything. And maybe you can individually sanction individuals, but doing it to a group is almost impossible. So I think we have to get better about how we fund these things. And I think you know Brian was on to something. Instead of let's raise money, let's have people say, you know, in sort of a, an encrypted inside inner group, I'm willing to provide some funding. And then figure out how do we identify the person on the other end and let's have them be individual transactions. The problem with that is there's so much freaking fraud. So much fraud. Where I'm a trucker and I'm broke down and I'm in the convoy and I need 2,000 bucks and all of a sudden four or five guys chip in, he's got his 2,000 bucks and he's some jackass sitting on the beach in freaking Florida. So I, I don't, and that's why people, people are like, why do they use GoFundMe and stuff like that? Because there's recourse for fraud. So I, I think we need to get better at building out DAOs that can manage that, that are unstoppable. That if somebody comes to whoever they think's in charge and says, hey, we're seizing it, the person just goes, okay, well, how does it work? I don't know. It just does what it does. Did you set it up? No. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, good luck. But we also have to be strategic with the action. See, the most masterful thing that was ever done like this was Gandhi's march to the sea. When they did crack down, all it did was hurt them. And that's the good thing about Canada. I don't think Justin Trudeau's government is stronger now than they were before it happened. It definitely dealt them some serious blows, and it showed people who and what they are. So we have to balance our desire for retribution for settling scores with the tactical approach to actually getting something done positively. Um, Jesse says it costs like $3 to access an ATM. That's not your bank's no matter what you withdraw. That's true, and that's the fiat system. And I could send you 15 bucks worth of Bitcoin right now across Lightning for a few cents, and you'll have it almost instantly. So, yeah, this whole it's expensive shit is ridiculous. Uh, so... That's what John meant about my story. I get it now. I don't really know what you're talking about there. Sorry, man. Um, do you know how much Bitcoin is lost every year? I don't. Some, not as much as used to be, right? There's an estimated 2 to 3 million Bitcoin not in circulation at all, as best we can tell. That doesn't mean nobody holds the keys and still knows how to access it. And there's definitely a big stack of sats that Satoshi set aside, which is why we know Craig Wright is not Satoshi. Because if you were Satoshi and you wanted to prove you were Satoshi, all you'd have to say is, this address that's got you know 10,000 Bitcoin in it, I'm going to move one Bitcoin out of it at 8 a.m. tomorrow, you look at the blockchain and watch it happen. So there's a stack there. So Satoshi, whoever he, they are, could come back and basically create some inflation in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Because while those, those coins are already issued, 
if they can move and circulate, they become part of the real supply versus the total supply. The real supply is what can move. What's up for grabs? But some is lost every year, but not much. If you mean lost as in locked up, you can't get to it anymore. Right? That No, there's not a lot of that. Now, lost as in you were stupid and you let somebody get your keys and steal it from you, there's probably a lot more of that. But that's still, in fact, that's going to get circulated really fast because if I steal Bitcoin that way, if I'm smart, I want it out of my hands as fast as possible, converted into something else multiple times and dissipated into multiple holdings, not held in a cloud server on Amazon Web Services like a moron. Uh, but I don't know exactly how much. It says, best way to store seed phrase in a crypto wallet. You have to figure out how you're going to do that for yourself, but you don't store the seed phrase in the crypto wallet. The, the, the seed phrase accesses the crypto wallet and allows you to sweep the proceeds into other wallets. So some way that you're not going to lose it, and yet it is still secure. And this is why earlier this week when we talked with uh, Unchained Capital about multi-sig wallets, as you get into larger and larger amounts of money, it kind of makes sense. So with a multi-sig you have a, instead of just a passphrase, you have keys and, and private and public keys like always. But now we have three keys and we have a third party that holds one key and that person can do absolutely nothing with that one key. They have to have one of your other two keys that you hold. But then you take your keys and you store them in separate locations. And if some, one of them's compromised and somebody's like, I got his key and they go to get the, it doesn't move. It's locked up in a vault, a multi-sig vault. So then they can't get it. And then you can find out that that was compromised because it'll show that that happened. And then you and your your A key can go to your third party and C key and together you can move it. Or you can use the two keys that you have to move it. Right? Just because they have the other key doesn't mean you can't still use that key plus your other key. It's like the old movies, you know, when they were going to launch some missiles and you got two guys in the missile silo and they both have a key. And they have to turn the key at the same time, and you can't reach the keys as one man, and that way it takes two people to launch the missile. So that that's that's another way you can build redundancy. But one thing we have to do, you know, I'll tell you how crypto gets lost, not just Bitcoin. If somebody dies and they have no redundancy plan for their heirs to be able to get the keys and use them. So you need to be able to have something that goes into effect to create transfer. At that point, and whenever anybody has any information, then that becomes a risk, and that's why this multi-sig model, when it comes to estate planning with crypto, is going to become really, really important. Because basically, what you'll have is my third party will release the other key at the time of my death, where you can present a death certificate and say he's really dead. I'm his estate planner. His will has been read. This is what's supposed to happen now, and then I only have to put in my estate plan one half of the equation, right? And then that way when I die, my my attorney or or whoever I'm working with to do my estate planning can't steal my money. And the third party can't steal my money, and I still have total control. It's something people don't know a lot about, honestly, and we probably need to do more on it. Uh, Jake says, do an Outback episode and present your 8-minute flat earth open. No, I'll tell you why. Because I may someday take one of these other flat earth cards and do a debate like I described. 
And if I'm going to do that, I don't want my open out prior to the debate. That was one of the problems with our friend Jackson. He wanted to debate. He wanted me to. He said, if you don't debate me in email, I don't want to debate you in public. He wanted me to de pre-debate. Like, we're not pre-debating, dude. That's not how debates work. Um, Paw said, uh, dry pig manure in the sun to kill the bad stuff. UV kills. I think drying out manure does a lot. I don't know if it does everything, but it does a lot. I'm going to skip one because you've gotten a lot. Humble Mechanic, glad you're here. If you're still here, dude, says, great to catch a live. Thanks, dude. Have a rad weekend. You too, man. Thank you. And uh, mole problems, damage my vegetables. Uh, no, I know it's not a world problem, but it's a big problem to me. I don't have a lot of solutions for moles because I've never had a mole problem. Uh The best ones I can give you is they make mole traps that are like plunger traps, and you get the mole tunnel, and then you put the trap over the tunnel, and you pull the plunger up, and the mole goes under there, and he gets stabbed in the back and dies. Or you go and take your garden beds, and you trench down your garden beds, and you sink steel mesh into the ground in a perimeter, and that keeps the moles out. That's what I got for you. Anyway, with that, guys, I know a bunch of you did make some more comments, but we're at an hour 40. I do have some stuff, and... Humble Mechanic is still with us, so thanks for hanging out to the end. Any good ideas for leftover lamb? Lamb sandwiches. Um, I'll give you a tip so that you can really use leftover meat. Never, you shouldn't do it anyway, cook any meat that doesn't need to be well done, like chicken does, well done. Because that leaves room for reheating it and not annihilating it. Um, If I had some leftover lamb, I would probably make a quick stew. I would probably take some, um, you know, I don't do a lot of carbs, but for that, I might throw two or three little golden potatoes in there. So you're talking about like an ounce of potato, maybe some ground nut or some Jerusalem artichoke, uh, some parsley, a little bit of dehydrated celery and carrot, uh, and some stock. And put that in my little mini crock pot that I, I had as an item today for you guys this week. And just cook that until that lamb falls apart. And then eat that for lunch. That would be one answer that I could give for that. All right, guys. I appreciate you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed the variety of topics. We're moving relatively quick with it. The stories, etc. I really enjoyed answering these questions from you guys. If you're like, I asked another question and he didn't answer it. I had all this ready to go about an hour after I made that post yesterday. And I tried to be fair, and I tried to pull some questions from Gab, from Float, and from MeWe. So I didn't get everybody, but I think I got all... There's not one thing I did today that didn't come from you, except what happened to Flat Earth Guy, which some of you asked about anyway, but not in those posts. So thanks a lot. Follow me. Get on Telegram, and you won't have to miss these live streams. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social, or look at the bottom of any episode, and you will see all of my ways you can get in touch with me by social media. But Telegram is the way. And remember, you can always help support this show. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. No matter what you buy, you will help us out. And do consider becoming an MSB member. MSB is on sale for $35 a year. That does apply to recurring. You can find out at the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members or click on the members tab to learn more about that. But the discount code, Mexico, all one word, Mexico, lowercase, M-E-X-I-C-O, 22, 22. Mexico 22, 
And so if you want to support me, those are two ways you can do it. Thank you. You guys have a great weekend. I will catch you next week. And I think we'll lead off this, the uh, week with another Outback with Jack. Maybe we'll go into more of the uh, temporal, um, you know, current event issues next on uh, Monday. Because who knows what this weekend will bring us. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.